I have two questions for you this morning. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to share the answer or even tell it to the person next to you, but I do want you to think about it. Can you right now, in this moment, when, remember when you were excited about something? I mean, really, really excited. Maybe so excited that you're a little embarrassed about your behavior. The answer to that question is always going to be the same for me for many years. You see, when, my son, when our son Court was a senior in high school, Court and his friend Christian, friend closer than a brother, biked from Santa Monica, California, to Tybee Island, Georgia. So they rode from the whole southern distance across the U.S. It wasn't just for fun. It was to raise money for water wells that for Haiti. It was right after the earthquake, and so that's what they were about. Somewhere along the way, um, Louis Giglio and the team from Passion, and some of you know or are familiar with that name, Louis Giglio and Chris Tomlin have led a movement, a growing movement among um, seniors in high school and college students to really engage them on mission and in the kingdom of God. Well, Louis got a hold of um, a tweet that was going back and forth and um, tracked them down and then invited all of us, because the families, we were very much a part of the, of the um, ride across the country, to join them in Atlanta on Good Friday. We, they just would have finished the ride the day before, but to be in Atlanta for the Good Friday service that was going to be held in the amphitheater in Atlanta. And it was going to be with about 10,000 people. So we thought that is a great way to celebrate to finish such a ride. So we went, and we were escorted in with everybody, and Court and Christian kind of were taken off, and we had no idea that they were going to be an important part of that Good Friday service. And soon, there's Louis Giglio up on the stage, and on the big screen is the map that showed their ride from Santa Monica to Tybee Island, and he's talking about these two high school guys from Memphis, Tennessee, and what they had done, and how we needed to offer them a grand celebration for completing that ride. The next thing I know, 10,000 people are on their feet, and they're cheering as Court and Christian come riding their bikes (laughs) through the amphitheater. I think I was a little bit out of control (laughs) because the man behind me leans over and he says, which one is your son? (laughs) And I was like, what made you think I'm one of the moms? And he looked at me and he said, really? (laughs) I was a little bit out of control that day and it was wonderful. It was wonderful. So my second question is, can you remember a moment when you were excited, I mean really excited, a bit out of control excited about God and about something that he was doing in your life? That's probably a bit harder to answer, isn't it? You can say, well, yes, I am excited about God, but it's not really my personality and I wasn't really raised that way to be expressive. You know, why do we struggle so much in just offering our open adoration and joy before the Lord? This is the fourth Sunday in Lent, and we are in a sermon series where we have been looking at the the robes and coverings in Scripture as God tells his grand story. We've looked at the robe of God, of how God's robe bears his majesty and reflects his glory. We heard about the covering of the fig leaves that robe our shame. And last week we heard about the multicolored coat that Joseph wore, that while on one hand it was a blessing, it also brought challenge and even suffering into his life. Today we're going to see what it means to be joyfully abandoned to God as we see King David exchange one robe for another. A bit of background 
on the story. Some of you are familiar with the story. For about 30 years under King Saul, the nation had been without the Ark of the Covenant as part of their national worship. You remember the, the Ark was a, basically a portable box, but it was surely heavy because it was covered in gold. And within the box were items that were to help the Israelites remember their relationship with God and his specific care for them. There was a golden bowl with manna in it. There was the Aaron's rod that budded. And there were the two tablets of the commandments. And on the top was a grate that was called the mercy seat, where they knew they could go. That's where they would meet God. And along that were two cherubim that were just you know, adorning that box. It had been removed under the, under the rule of Saul, but now David was king. And it was David's intention to take that ark, which was the memory, the, the symbol of God's presence with them. Because wherever they went, if that ark was with them, they knew God was with them. No matter what happened to them, that ark rem reminded them of God's presence among them. But David now wants to move the capital to Jerusalem. And, and to do that, he also wants the Ark of the Covenant brought there so that it will be the center of their worship. That's what we're seeing that day. You're seeing the excitement and the anticipation of many as they're bringing the Ark into Jerusalem. And that was enough energy to bring together all the elders of Israel and more than 30,000 people to join in a parade to bring that Ark in. I think it's hard for us to understand what that day would have been like for the Israelites to be able to see the ark coming into Jerusalem, to see and experience God's presence among them being restored. We might come close if we tried to imagine what it would be like if every cross in every place that we know of had been removed. That there was no cross to be found or seen anywhere, not in sanctuaries, not on buildings, not on the side of the road, nowhere. Imagine for a moment, if you will, what this space would be like if that cross was not here. When you're away from home traveling, I've had this experience in places that are new. How reassuring it is when you see a cross. You feel grounded, okay, because it's a reminder that Christ is Lord over every single inch. And, and if we don't have that cross, if it's no longer there, we're having to trust our memory of that. And the cross is a visual reminder that Christ, of everything that he has done for us, memories remain strong only for so long. And pretty soon they become long-ago stories, fables, and eventually myths. And it's hard to bring back the truth and the memory of that. Fleming Rutledge, can you tell we're excited about her? Fleming Rutledge, who I hope you will come and join us on that Saturday morning in two weeks to hear her speak about the cross of Christ. This is what she says about the cross. It is by the cross that we are set in motion by its power. We're energized by it. We're, we're upheld by it. We're guaranteed by it, secured by it for the promised future because the cross is the power of the creating word that gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that did not exist. The cross of Christ means absolutely everything to you and to me. And if we had lived without a visual reminder of it for a generation or more, we would be beside ourselves as we anticipated its return. That's what the day was like for the Israelites. So David and the elders are leading a parade, and we begin to see that David is just exploding in worship. You know, friends, what we worship is what actually defines us, be it power, be it money, 
be it accomplishment, be it a relationship. It defines us. And it was David's worship of God, the living God, that defined him. More than anything else, David wanted God's presence with him and with his people. He was well aware that on his own, he did not have what was required to give to the people what they would need. David knew that he needed God to be the one that would do that. In David's relationship with God and in his worship of him, he'd come to know some things about God that as king, he wanted his people to understand and to embrace. Listen to these words that David has recorded in the Psalms about what he had come to know about God. It will be familiar to many of you. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I love you, O Lord, my strength. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and their new wine abound. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Don't we need the same thing? We need a heart like David's, a heart that beats for God. We need to learn the lesson that we can do nothing apart from him. You and I need his presence and we need his power if we are going to follow him and carry out his will in our lives. And the number one place that we're going to find that heart and to grow that heart is going to be in our worship. Matthew, can you put up that quote? This is from A.W. Tozer. The women on the retreat last weekend where we looked at, at worship will be familiar with it. Tozer says this, Worship is man's full reason for existence. Worship is why we are born and why we are born again. God's word tells us over and over and over again that that's what we are about. Worship is all through scripture. When God led his people out of Egypt and then he's letting them know what their new life is going to be like, it's going to be all about worship. When the Ten Commandments are given to Moses, the first four are all about worship. You shall have no other gods before me, the number one. You shall not make or bow down to a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You will remember the Sabbath day and you will keep it holy. God has given us, his people, our own songbook, our own worship source. We call it the book of Psalms. And many of the 150 Psalms that are in it were written by David himself. That tells me that God's people are to be those who are poetic, singing, who together make a worshiping community. Come into his presence with singing. And if you can't sing, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. God's people are people who worship. Back to the parade. As the ark and the people are getting close to Jerusalem, we see that David exchanges one robe for another. And it's an, an important exchange. As he worshiped, David lays down his identity as king. David is no longer wearing his kingly robe. He puts on a robe of fine linen, just like all the Levites who are carrying the ark. And over the robe, he was wearing the priestly garment of a linen ephod. He's moved from being the king to being the servant. 
David had removed the robe that would have lifted him high above all the people to be dressed as one of the common people who were joyfully bringing in the ark. I will speak for the pastors when I say how much we really do value what we hear from some of you who are participating in the Lenten study, where many of you are gathering around each week around the scriptures that are then going to be preached this week. It's like a pre-look into what's coming. This week, several of you said that David's robe exchange brought to mind another who had made a similar but a much grander exchange. Paul writes in Philippians these words, that Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As he worshipped, David knew exactly who he was before God which gave him no real choice but to humble himself before him. You see, David refused to hide behind his kingly position. And as he worshipped, he was not intent on guarding his position, and he certainly was not seeking or cared about receiving approval or applause from others. When Mike and I first came to Stanwich Church, one of you wanted to help us understand what is truly unique about this place, and you said this, There is absolutely no social advantage to going to Stanwich Church. Meaning that when we gather together from many different backgrounds, many different experiences, we come together for one thing, and it's to worship the God of our lives who loves us beyond measure. Worship that is pleasing to God is not formed in a hierarchy. We are all the same before the throne of God. David was not perfect in worship, and neither are we. I ask you this, what do you try to hide behind when you come into this place to worship? Do you try to guard your reputation? God is the one who does that. Are you wondering what others will think? You see, when we worship, we lay down our self-created identities, all of our self-proclamation, all of our self-promotion, and we abandon ourselves to bring all of who we truly are to worship the living God. You and I were simply made to worship. It would be way too easy, way too easy to make the so what of the story to be that we are to dance before the Lord as if no one is watching. And even when they're watching, to not care about it. But there's much more about that that we see here. You see, worship is much more than us coming here week after week, hoping to hear a helpful hint to get us through the week until the next time we can come for the next helpful hint. It's not about that. Friends, worship is our stake in the ground. No matter what has happened in your life, whatever has happened in this week, as God's people, you worship. No matter how you have failed in loving God, failed in loving others well, you worship. We will rejoice and we will worship in the midst of, or maybe even because of, what is happening in our lives. Because when we worship, there is more, than going, there's more going on than we can clearly see. God commands us. He commands us to worship, to bring glory to his name. Because when we do, we are changed from the inside out. Next slide, Matthew. Tim Keller says it well. How do you change your behavior? 
Change what you worship. The secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is to worship. You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved in it. Moved to tears and moved to laughter. Moved by who God is and what he has done for you. That kind of worship does not come without practice. That kind of worship does not come with slight intention. And it doesn't come by osmosis where we think that all, if all we do is show up and sit by somebody, maybe their heart for worship will just kind of land on us as well. Let me say it another way. Worshiping God in a way that is worthy of his name comes only with practice, comes only with intention, and comes only with showing up. And now we come to the last verse in that passage, which I find to be among the saddest in all of Scripture, among it. It says this, And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating, and she despised him in her heart. David's wife, Queen Michael, daughter of Saul, she's watching at a distance from a window to see not only the leaping and the rejoicing and the praising of David, but she's seeing thousands and thousands of people joining with him. But she's not a participant. She's holding what she sees at arm's length. Michael holds David's joyful abandonment in the worship of God with nothing but contempt. Michael had no relationship, no connection, no understanding of the God that David worshipped. And in his robe exchange, David had pushed aside all that was important and valuable to her, had pushed it to the side. She was not just embarrassed. She was not just annoyed. She despised him for it. Have you had a Michael moment when you have judged another in their worship? Friends, it's actually easy to do. When Mike and I were planning our wedding, we were choosing who was going to marry us. We, we, we jokingly say that it took two pastors to close the deal. And so I had my friend from my past, Scott Demick, and then um, Mike had Norman Montjani, who was a South African priest who had been Norman and his wife. Margaret had been like family to Mike as he had gone through Gordon-Conwell Seminary. So it was a great joy to have these two men in our lives who were going to be there that day. As we were preparing for the wedding, and the wedding was going to be in Virginia, Margaret was very excited about coming to an American wedding. And she would ask me, start asking me questions. She wanted to understand it. She was so excited. I think she was more excited about it than I was. And she, when she called me Jax, and she said, Jax, what about this? No, no, Margaret, we don't do that in an American wedding. Well, Jax, what about this? No, 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 Margaret, we don't do that. And I really began to feel like, you know, our, our weddings are kind of shabby compared to what she was used to in South Africa. And then she asked me a question that in many ways I was dreading. I knew it was coming. She said, Jax, when do I get to do the yell? <laughs> Margaret, you can't do the yell. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. If you've watched on the news or if you've seen movies, there is a celebration yell that is done in Africa. And if a believer is doing that yell, it is a glorious sound. 
it is amazing. But for me to think about that kind of celebration and that glorious sound taking place in the chapel at the University of Virginia just was not going to go for me. Mike and I, I made the mistake of telling too many people my concern, and so you know what I'm going to tell you. So that day, there we are. It was a wonderful worship service. It's a glorious day. We're standing in the front of that chapel, which some of you have been in. And, you know, Mike and I are standing there. The photographer is just putting people beside us to take the pictures. And I can see Margaret Manjani at the end of the aisle. And she's standing next to Rob, one of the husbands of one of the bridesmaids. And this is what I found out. This is what happened. Rob's standing there with her. Margaret. Wasn't that a great wedding? Oh, yes, Rob. It was a marvelous wedding. So wonderful. Margaret, isn't there something that you do in your culture to celebrate and to praise God? Yes, Rob. Yes, Rob. But Jax, Jax told me I can't do it. Margaret, look at her. It's the happiest day of her life. (laughs) Margaret, she would love it. Do you really think so, Rob? Yes, Margaret. It'll be great. And I helplessly stood there as I could see her just kind of wind up <laughs> to let that yell go. And I, trust me, it bounced off all those stone walls and echoed throughout. And I really think that if those walls could talk, they would say, remember that day when that woman just unleashed, uninhibited, her glory and praise to God. Wasn't that a great day? I will confess to you that I was mad. (laughs) I was embarrassed. I was annoyed. I don't want to say I despised her, but I was angry. And I confirmed with Mike, and you can ask him, it was the first argument of our marriage was why Mike had not kept her from doing that. (laughs) As if he could. Margaret Manjani is with the Lord right now. And I totally anticipate the day when I step into glory and Margaret will be, Jax! And that yell will echo throughout all of the heavenlies. Friends, may God grant us hearts that are hungry for him. Hearts that are completely abandoned to him. May we not be satisfied until he comes to us in all his power and his glory to transform us into being all he created us to be. That was the heart of David as he danced before the Lord. May that be our heart as well. Thanks be to God.